Great to see everybody here. Feels like a smoky Friday. Um, it was, uh, I did hear the wind chill early this morning. Did anybody get the number? Negative, what? 27 is the number I heard. That's legit. And it's only uphill from here. It's good. It's only up from here. We crossed over. I remember one time I was preaching in a remote, remote part of uh, India. I was in Calcutta, and remote part of the city. And I'd been preaching for 10 days, and I got sick. I probably shouldn't tell you this story, but uh, I, I was so sick. I was throwing up. I was losing everything. And at 3 in the morning, I'm in the bathroom. I'm sitting on the toilet. I'm vomiting between my kneecaps. And a rat runs across my bare feet. And there was something about it like, wow, it's uphill from here. It can only get better from here. And I had that feeling this morning when I heard it was negative 27, like, hey, the rat ran across our feet. We are moving up from here. It's only going to get warmer. It's going to be like 30-something degrees tomorrow. So just, man, just get, the, get that suntan lotion out, that sunblock, and let's go for it. Hey, we started last week something really wonderful. We're going to keep it going. Can we welcome Dr. Alan Tennyson yes. and the great Bill Tibbetts to the stage? Hey, before we get started, I want to, I think we need to celebrate just something real quick. I, I was watching our worship and engaging, and I love what the, we need to shout out for College of Fine Arts, because looking at our worship team up here, do you know we had majors who are worship majors? We had pastoral majors up here. We had education majors. We had business majors up here. And I think that's the beauty of College of Fine Arts at North Central and proper theology. Oh, and I would also like to point out that um, I had a business major up here this morning who um, they skipped my class this morning. Um, and so uh, to that person, God healed you, I imagine. I believe in healing. I'm also expecting a conversation with you later on, so please come talk to me. I think we're talking about Corinthians today, which lacked accountability. So we are bringing accountability uh, to this space. Seriously, can we thank Worship Live Kofa? They do a phenomenal job bringing our whole campus together. Now, did I hear correctly? We've, we've, there's been a change since the last time we were here, a change in numbers. Has someone had a birthday on this stage? Me and every other groundhog around the, yeah, I'm on I'm February 2nd. I, I had birthday yesterday. So can we sing happy birthday no, to the great don't. Bill Tibbetts? No, no, please don't. Happy no. birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Bill Tibbetts. Happy birthday to you. Yes. Thank you. See, it's, yep. an, intro, it's an introvert's dream to have this happen. I just, yes. I'm and so, so excited. Yesterday, did anybody sing it to you on Groundhog's Day? No, I actually asked people not to sing it to so me. So this is Groundhog's Day. Thank we you, because it's repeating we itself. twice. 
Anyway, seriously, happy birthday, Thank you. Bill. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so we just kind of, you know, touched the electric fence a little bit last week, and I go, I don't think that conversation was done. And we'll just kind of see how the Holy Spirit takes these on Fridays. I did hear there might be a special guest next Friday. Uh, Martha Tennyson's in town. We might be having... It's like an upgrade. It's like, is that the upgrade? Yeah, yeah. From this okay. I taught her everything I know. Yes. Okay, what we want to do today is I'm going to put up one of, uh, it, it's a hard verse. It's like, how do, we, how do we live this out in this day and age? Um, it's going to be kind of a sharp, corrective verse. But before I put up the passage from 1 Corinthians 5, I want to uh, bring up this passage from Genesis 45. If we could put that up there. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. 20 years earlier, he had been sold out by his brothers. You can't find a personal injustice, a betrayal, really at this level, other than maybe a family member murdering somebody, uh, which happened in, in the kingdoms of, uh, of Israel. But this is a brutal story of jealousy. And they sold their second youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery, put him in a hole. They were, they were irritated at him because God had given him a dream for his life. And he, he probably shared the dream too quick with probably not the right crowd, but it was all in God's redemptive design. So they, they're going to kill him or let the beasts kill him. And one of the brothers is an advocate at the last minute, saves his life. And then a band of traveling gypsies come along and buy him up out of the pit. And so they don't know what has become of him, though. So now 20 years has gone by. The brothers have been driven to Egypt because of a famine. And now the guy that was the minority is in the majority. Joseph is in an executive role under Pharaoh at Egypt, in Egypt. And the brothers, who were all powerful 20 years ago, are now in a helpless position. So life flipped. The power structures flipped on them. And now... They've come face to face with their worst nightmare. Uh, their brother's alive, but they don't know it's his brother, but he knows it's them. Here's what Joseph says. It's the big reveal. Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Can't change history. That's, that is the teaching of history. But it's how you interpret history, not how you teach history. It's, how, it's not how you tell history. It's how are we going to interpret it and apply it to today. That's the problem America is having right now. And so we, we, we have to teach history. Uh, but it's like, okay, what do we do with our history now? That's where the divide is. So he says, um, you sold me into Egypt. You, these guys, their hearts stop. <sighs> They can't believe that what they did 20 years ago is now right in their face. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. This is one of the most shocking verses in our struggle to teach social justice in our day and age. Whether it's a victim of racial history, a victim of family history. I have sister, I won't go into our family history, but it's a tough situation. Joseph tells them, don't be angry with yourselves. Now, there's a theory out there that we have got to make people understand what they did. Or if they don't know what they did, they'll do it again. That's the basic premise that our world operates on. 
This scripture kind of turns that upside down a little bit. So it's a, it's a scripture. We've got to wrestle with this scripture. He's letting these brothers off the hook? You can't do that. Because what if they do it again? I'm not going to give up control by giving this totally to God. I got to keep control of this. So I need to be in charge of all of this emotional flow between my brothers and me. I'm not giving all that to God. Are you serious? Why would I give that to God? Um, I, I'm gonna, but he does. Don't even be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Seriously? It's one of the most shocking verses I have ever found in the Bible. Um, for God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there's five more to go in which they'll be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. So in my reading of the scripture, betrayal, when given entirely to God, is a promotion and catapults you ahead of the oppressor, the person who wronged you. He sends you ahead of them in life. They can't set you back unless you let them. So betrayal is a sent ahead, not a set back. He sent you ahead with all this competency so that when they show up down the road, you're there to preserve life for them. It, it's a shocking story. Uh, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Can you imagine telling the person who has wronged you that? He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I think one more quick slide. Is there one more verse up there or is that it? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. So this amazing verse of scripture from the life of Joseph, a type of Christ, is it, is it a role model for us um, in our basic approach to our enemies in this life? Now I want to jump into the New Testament, get to the heart of what this is about. One of the toughest things I ever read in the Bible when I was in my early 20s was this right here. Put it up. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy, or the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. You'd have to go to another planet to be around, to, to not be around non-Christians who behave this way. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So when people say, don't judge me. Man, the minute I became a Christian, <laughs> judge me. I have to be judged. You have to examine me to see if I'm held accountable and living like Christ. 
So this whole thing, don't judge me. Believers, we just throw that out there. But is it scripture? We're going to dive into this. Uh, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you, Paul writes. Okay. Let's go after this a little bit. Uh, Dr. Tennyson, what are your opening comments about that text? Uh, First, what happens right before this text? Uh, The Apostle Paul is dealing with a young man in the church who is shacked up with his father's wife. Uh, an incestuous relationship. And, and he says, this is, not, this is not an act of hypocrisy. This man hasn't hidden something that's come to light. He's done this openly. And Paul says, in this church, you're bragging, and it may actually mean you're actually bragging about how free you are in Christ that you're able to do this kind of thing. And he said the behavior is actually shocking to the pagans. And by the way, pagans actually had rules of certain things you couldn't cross, and hanging out, hooking up with your father's wife was one of those. And so you've actually done something that the pagans are like, well, we're not that bad. So, so Dr. Tennyson, hooking up is a Greek word. Where do you get that from the Greek? Yes, yes. <laughs> it really comes from the Hebrew. But you have this idea, right? That, that Paul says, so here's the problem. The problem isn't just, here's a, a man in the church in sin, but here's a man who, in, in the way it might actually be parsed in the Greek, he's actually done this in the name of the Lord, meaning that he's using this as an example of what it means to live a life in Christ. And Paul says, you guys are proud. You actually have to deal with this. This is destroying the witness of the church. And, of course, in this context, the church is not huge, right? It's not a size of this congregation. There might be 20 people in a room. So if one guy's doing this, you're, you're like 5% of the congregation. You're representing Christians to everybody else. And so he says you have to remove him. You have to, in a sense, hand him over to Satan. But why? Why? What does that mean? Well, it actually means you just kick him out of the church. Look, you want to live this way? You can go live this way in the world. You can't live this way in this community. But the point is this. By handing him over to Satan, he might be saved. You know, have you ever had a problem with the computer and gone to a tech person and their big solution was, have you turned it off and turned it back on again? Like sometimes to fix something, you reboot it. If somebody as a Christian is living this way, in a sense, Paul's saying, you got to reboot his soul. You can't live this way in the church. Let him learn to live this way in the world. Figure out that the world is what you have as a reward. So, So you're saying... Then if he can come back... He can come back right. So you're saying boot to reboot. Yes. I like that. I like yeah. that. Boot him out so he can reboot. Now, so, so Paul's not even saying kick him out just because he's not one of us. Yes. It's that the way to save this man yeah. is he, to get him to reboot the way that he's living. And the great thing is when you read one year later, he writes a letter to the same church, 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. He talks about. This person, I believe this is the topic in chapter 2, where he says, receive him back now into the fellowship. He's been out there alone with the devil for a year. Something good has transpired. Now you need to receive him back because it's too much for his soul to bear to live in that constant state uh, of that separation. But the courage, Dr. Tennyson, to practice this. I've only done it twice in my pastoral life. Have I ever told someone that they weren't welcome in the local church? It's happened twice in my ministry. You've, you've had it happen? I've done it four times. Four times. Um, and so it's rare, but it's significant. So this whole idea that, hey, man, we just got to keep loving people and everything remains status quo, 
Paul kind of goes right into that space, and it's very hard for all uh, two times for me, four times for you. Um, it's not like of course, it ha- might just be I'm, I'm twice as judgmental as you. Yeah, it could be, could be, could be. Uh, um, Buzz, you were in L.A., so that was a little bit different. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. I could give, I'll give, can I give you a couple scenarios? Yeah. So here's, because I'm going to deal with maybe these six things he says. In, in the first three, just real quick, idolatry, sexual immorality, greed, these are the things that if you do them, it's exactly what separates us from the pagans. We worship one God. We don't worship every God. We, we are, are sanctified in the way we conduct our bodies and sexuality. We, we don't live for money. We live for Jesus. If you're not different from the world, you'll never make a difference in the world. And so these are the three things that really get to the witness of the church. But these other three here, that you're not a slanderer, right? You're not someone who is a robber. And in fact, one, one person could actually argue that, that that actually even covers things like slave trading because you've actually taken from someone. Uh, you're not someone who's a drunkard. These are things that harm the community. And so as a pastor, uh, I have uh, almost every case I'm thinking of, it's been about harm of community. And I'll give you one example. Young man in my church... Uh, attending church. He's a drug dealer. And you know what? Drug dealers are welcome, right? Like, you want to come, you want to attend, that's fine. What I find out is he's trying to identify all the people in my church who are recovering addicts so that when they get to the parking lot, he can try to turn them into a new revenue stream. That's where I had to confront. And I say, look, we're going to walk you from our church to your car. And you are not going to come up to one of our church members. You're not going to try and do this. This is not about us not loving you. It's about us protecting everyone else from you. Yeah, I would say, I I think this, what you just shared, is the most important distinction in this passage. Because otherwise, we're then setting the church up to be sin managers. And I don't think that's what we're designed to do or to be. It's in the context of hurting the body of Christ that we need to be able to protect the flock, right? That's the distinction. Otherwise, we're going to leave an interpretation that says, you're out, you're, you're doing this, you need to leave, and so forth. Um, it was a couple, a couple years ago, reading this passage of Scripture that the Lord impressed on my heart. And I'm, please hear me, this is not a, in a judgmental state. It's more of a, for me, a revelation of, uh, uh, for a space of prayer and to engage. But this feels a little bit like what we're dealing with and contending with a bit in our younger generation or the church today. And what I'm finding and when I read this Scripture, it's this language of, we want the love and grace of God, or Jesus, but we don't want the life of Jesus. Right. Let me say that again. I want all the love and grace that comes from Jesus, but I don't want to live within the boundaries of Jesus. That, to me, is one of the scariest places we can be as a church. As, as a church. And, and I think that's what we're contending with. And that's, what, that's the language I see in this space, right? I want it, I want it, but I'm going to do this. Right. I want it, I want it, I'm going to do this. And I think that's what we need to dive into. Why is that the case? Why do I look at a lot of young adults, why do, uh, myself even, and seeing, okay, why, why is this happening? You want all the proximity of Christianity without the blood that comes with it. Or the transformation. transformation yeah. and, and so you highlighted something very important. Um, this discernment of a pastor, of spiritual leaders, of an elder in a church, is this person struggling with this sin? Uh, or is this person calloused about this sin? Are they mocking God? 
Or are they truly contending with the enemy in the weakness of their flesh and trying to get victory? That's two entirely different kinds of people. Yeah. So if, if, if I'm around somebody that, for the most part, is struggling, said, man, the enemy's getting me. I, I, they recognize the behavior as sinful. They're still doing it, but they don't have the power and the teaching, the maturity yet, the discipleship, that transformational thing so that they can break free of that um, is different than a person who is knowingly, this is sin, I know it is, but they got a little smirk on their face, and which is a reflection of a calloused heart, and they're trying to bring other people into this teaching. So that takes sexual immorality. It's interesting in Revelation, when Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, his strong rebuke is that he talks about um, um, the spirit of Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the spirit of, um, uh, of uh, Balaam and Balak who, who led the people into sin, that scene with Moses. And he says, they teach people. There's another word in there. One of the, the uh, there's a, a faction of teachers that are false teachers. It, that Jesus, Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Thank you very much, boss. The Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. It, thank you that are teaching now watch this watch this both times it says they're teaching people to commit sexual immorality so sexual immorality has become a curriculum it's become a worldview it's not just this sudden rush of lust that we just fly off the rails with lust there's teaching in our society that these are no longer sinful actions or behaviors and so jesus goes after the people who are teaching people this. Um, and so, yeah, give me some more just, insights. So just to piggyback of what you said, so many times as a pastor, I'll people come up to me and they're like, hey, pastor, I'm really struggling with sin. And my answer has been, that's awesome. And they're like, why is that awesome? I'm like, because you didn't sign a treaty with it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's struggling the with sin stop. is exactly where you should be as a Christian. It's the moment they stop caring. That's, that's awesome. What I don't want you to do is struggle with that sin. I mean, I want you to sign a treaty with it. We're with you as a church in your struggle. We are here to encourage you. We're to help you. You don't have to hide that. It's when you sign a treaty with it, and then you're representing this to others as this is what it means to follow Jesus. Now you're actually damaging other people's growth. This morning in class, I have a friend who's a baker, and uh, she got a hold of my wife. She owns a bakery, and uh, she hired a bunch of 17, 18-year-olds. She's awesome. I love, I love how she runs her business, and they made way too much bread this week, and if they don't get rid of this bread, they're going to have to toss in all this stuff. So this morning in class, I brought in like garbage bags of bread, like giant loaves and baguettes, and I'm like, see, yeah, some of them are eating it right now. Uh, <laughs> I was like, take this bread in the name of Jesus, right? Uh, And now let's talk about strategy. And one thing about, we know, what makes bread rise? What makes bread rise? Yeast. Do you put, how much yeast does it take to make bread rise? A little or a lot? Hey, pay attention to me. A little or a lot? A pinch, right? That's what they're talking about, sin. It just takes a little bit of pinch of sin, and it goes throughout, and it causes a transformation. When we have sin in the community, there's a difference between, hey, let us address this, and let's walk alongside with you, versus I've been calloused. And it's going to transform that entire community, like yeast does to bread. And I want to highlight, five, we have five minutes, so I just want to say this. What Paul also says 
is we don't hold people outside the church to the same accountability. Preach. Preach As Christians, it. we hold each other accountable. Preach. We don't put that on people who aren't Christians. Preach. We don't Preach. tell Christians they have to Say live the it. church way. Sometimes what we've done as a church is we've tried to hold the world accountable, and we've been Come indifferent on. inside the church. Come on. So the world feels judged, and they look at the church, and we look like hypocrites. Yes. Paul's saying it should be the exact opposite. Yes. We're not treating the world yes. this way, but we're holding ourselves to account. This I is why I like the marketplace. Right? This is why I like being out in the marketplace as a business leader, because when you see all the tomfoolery, you're like, okay, you okay, because you're not underneath the blood, right? You fool, because you you underneath someone else's blood, but not my Jesus's blood, all right? So continue as is. Yeah. Now, here's, here's the fly in the ointment, though. Oh, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> in social media, yeah. so many people are coming in the name of the Lord on social media, teaching people that all this stuff is cool. All this is cool. And they, they're theologians or they're ministers or they're in the name of church or Christianity. It, we don't know anything about their church, their life, but they come in the name of the Lord. So it's this massive confusion middle earth that's, that is harming susceptible young Christians and to think, well, maybe I, it doesn't matter if I am this or that because they're, you're assuming they're a Christian who is saying this. They're not in your church, but they're in the social media church. And that's the difficulty we're in. Oh, it's, it's, it's difficult because we're not in the word. It's difficult because we, listen, it is difficult because we are not in the word of Christ. We're not in the word, right? We are not in the word. So we are like a wave in a wave that's being tossed back and forth or your feet being planted in the sand. It's shifting constantly. We got to know the word and measure this information that's coming to us on the daily against what God's word says. Otherwise, you're going to be, pause, I need to share this story. I felt, I woke up this morning, I'm like, I think I'm going to share this today. It's It's a choice. Because I talk with many of us in this room, and they're like, I don't feel. I don't, that, it always starts with those, that, those words. I don't feel. Why well, I feel this. I don't feel. I don't feel. I don't feel. Let me hear. Let me, following Christ is a choice. You get to choose this day whom, Joshua 24, right? Whom you shall serve. For me, I got this late in my spiritual walk. I got that late in my spiritual walk. I don't feel this. I don't, I feel this is right. Or I feel this is wrong. 2009, February 2009, three months after my daughter got diagnosed with a fatal heart disease that was going to kill her, I flew my wife and daughter down to St. Louis. They lived in a Ronald McDonald house, and I flew back and forth every Monday and Friday as she waited for a heart transplant. Waited for someone else to die for me to get her heart, right? When this happened, my life collapsed. It was like a sheet of glass had been held up, dropped and shattered into a thousand pieces. I grew up in an abusive home. My friends dreamt of being a football player, a firefighter, something I dreamt of having a family. I wanted love and safety. And now my most precious was going to be taken away from me. February 2009, I laid in bed 
on a day just like this. We had just flown up from St. Louis. It was late in the evening. My wife and daughter are down there. And I'm looking out the window, and I see a street light, and I see it start to snow. And I said, Lord, one of two things is going to happen tonight. I'm either going to kill myself because I cannot take the elephant that is sitting on my chest. Or I'm going to abandon everything I feel and I'm just going to believe what you say. I rolled off the bed. I remember the feeling of the carpet on my knees. And I said, the only reason, God, I'm going to choose you because if she gets through this, I don't want her to be without a daddy. So God, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to trust that heaven is real, that you exist, that you are my king, my sovereign Lord. And if you take her or allow her to be taken, you are still my God. I will, if you take my wife, if you allow her to be gone, you are still my God. And I said, I choose, it's you, God. And at that very moment, there was no bright light. I did not feel better, and my head wasn't less confused. And that was the moment I learned that following Jesus is a choice. I have to choose to follow Christ. So as we're up here talking about sin or not sin, our brothers and sisters and all this stuff, or being Christian adjacent, I want, the, I want the love and grace of God, but not the life. You have to choose. I don't feel, I don't feel, doesn't feel, I don't care. You have to choose what the word says and what does the word tell us to do. I'll leave it at that. So good. Okay, we got to wrap here. Um, closing couple seconds. Um, so this text in you're going to read it because you're reading through your Bibles. Like, when I come across this, what does this mean? Paul is talking about an individual who openly had settled on a sinful practice that not even the pagans did this, what he was doing. Wasn't hiding it and was settled and kind of calloused. And so it wasn't somebody struggling with a secret sin that got exposed. And then they go through the whole process of humiliation and shame and repentance and tears and help me. This is just a person living openly like this. There came a point that they had to deliver that person over to the enemy and said, listen, we're not going to hang out and have meals together even because it gives the impression that you can live like this openly and be a Christian and be sleeping with your father's wife. It can't happen. So me hanging out with you confuses people. So on rare occasion, you're going to maybe have to pull back from somebody in your life that's living that way, but to understand what the motive is, not a struggler, somebody that's calloused in that. Very quickly, so one of the guys that we had to dismiss from my church, we had to say, protect his wife from him. And uh, he was not happy that we were protecting his wife. Uh, He was a former professional baseball player, so he was a big guy, uh, very physically confrontational. Uh, we had some issues. Uh, we said, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this community. Two years later, he comes back to us fully repentant. 
He had changed. He had hit rock bottom. He had seen the light. Now, that marriage was over. That was not restored. But just because that ship had sailed, his relationship with God had not sailed. And because he came back, we received him with love. His life changed. But I'm saying, had we not taken a stand, he would have kept going in that direction in that same two-year period. Because we took a stand, he was able to come to his senses, and that's really the whole point of this. It's not to condemn. Mm -mm. It's so someone can be brought back in. Right? To tie a bow on this, I want to make sure you guys get this. Remember, this is someone in the church proclaiming that the sin was okay. Jesus hung out with sinners. Let's go to Luke 15. He hung out with the sinners, all right? And he was not given up his Jesusness because he hung out with the sinners. We're here particularly speaking to Christians who are practicing the sin, proclaiming it, and teaching it amongst the community. That's good. Let's all stand up real quick, and uh, we'll hang up here for a second. Yeah, I, lo- I love that line, Jesus didn't hang out with sinners. But he didn't hang out watching sinners sin. Uh, he hung out with sinners in that neutral communal space of eating and doing life. I think where we're going to go next in this is going to go back to that Joseph passage. Is there an, is there an ability not to always use our past and our pain as a free pass in life? I was talking with somebody completely immersed in pornography and they were saying, but that's my trauma. That's how I cope with my trauma. And I, I tried to explain to them lust versus trauma. And now lust will find its way in many gates. But that Joseph passage where he liberated the people who were instruments of pain in his life, I think I want to dig deeper into that because our generation this day, my age, your age, <coughs> is using pain and trauma as a get-out-of-jail-free card to live however they want to live because I can always default to my trauma. So I want to theologically kind of go in there for a minute and tear that passage and say, is that theologically accurate? Do people who've been through terrible pain and trauma in their life, do they get an ability to live a different kind of Christian life because of that? I think it's an important question to ask. So Father, thank you for a great day, Lord. Thank you for our Wonderful student body, God, I just pray as we head into our weekend, head into a few minutes of prayer together, the Lord, you would bless our day and our time. Okay, here's what happens. You guys have been doing great on Fridays. Just get in a little circle with your floor, your sweet mates, whoever it is. Pray for each other, head into the weekends. We got some staff and faculty that are going to line up here. Uh, If you guys could move right now, make yourselves available. If you on this Friday are carrying a burden in your life physically, need a healing some kind, or you're carrying something from home, I want you to find somebody to pray with. We're going to put some music uh, up here. Someone will be on the piano. And, but I just want to encourage you to spend a few minutes in prayer. And then we'll all kind of gather up here uh, for those that are left. But get in a circle. Pray for your roommates. Make certain that the hearts are clean and clear. Forgiveness. Uh, love one for another. And just if you need to make anything right, let's do it now for a few minutes. And turn this wonderful room into a household of prayer for a few minutes. Come and find some staff and faculty. You need personal prayer. We are up here for you. You can come now.